Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. A very good morning, and you're welcome to today's Signpost webinar. We hope you're keeping safe and well. The Signpost series, uh, as you know, is brought to you by Chagas Connected in association with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, uh, the National Rural Network, and Food Drink Ireland Skillnet. And today we're going to be talking about farmers' attitudes to results-based agri-environmental schemes. And for those of you who aren't familiar with them, uh, results-based schemes, they usually involve payments uh, to farmers uh, for uh, delivering results uh, uh, or which uh, uh, for, for measures that support biodiversity and other environmental benefits. And uh, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Tia Hennessy, uh, from, who's head of the School of Business in UCC, and Dr. Tracy Bradfield, who's a lecturer in economics in UCC. Good morning, uh, Tia and Tracy. You're very welcome. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. And uh, of course, we have Pat uh, is going to be helping us with questions afterwards. So uh, do send us your questions using the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen. Um, but uh, Thea, maybe you could start with you just to give us a little bit of background on, on the work that you do. Uh, you're no stranger to Athenry, where uh, yes. I know you worked with us in Chagask for many years. Um, but maybe you could tell us about the work that you're doing. That's right, Mark. Thanks very much for the introduction. I'm with UCC now. I'm head of the School of Business there, um, but I'm an agricultural economist originally. So the type of research I do is looking at the impact of policy on uh, the viability of farming, and that can be environmental policy or economic policy or, or market trends or whatever. Um, I'm with UCC six years now, but as you said, I was with Chagas before that. I won't say how many years because it'll age me. But um, when I was in Chagas, I was in the uh, economic research um, uh, program and I was heading up the National Farm Survey. Um, so many um, very enjoyable years in, in Chagas and doing you know, similar work still now in UCC. And still good, good connection still with Chagask. Um, and Tracy, uh, you're you're working in the economics department. Um, maybe could you tell us a little bit about your your own background? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so my name is Tracy Bradford. I'm currently lecturing in economics in UCC, and that includes some agricultural economics modules as well. So I have quite a similar interest, really, to the so in terms of farm performance, farm sustainability, like the results I present today as kind of my last year of work. And before that, I researched agricultural land markets with Chagas as a PhD student. So I've worked heavily with the National Farm Survey as well. So this is a, a really pertinent topic. Um, the Department of Agriculture uh, is about to launch uh, it, the, the new Acres Agri-Environmental Scheme, which does have uh, strong elements of results-based uh, schemes in it. Uh, so it's, it's great to see that those pilots are actually um, the, the the learnings from those pilots uh, that I'm sure you'll be referring to uh, have been uh, uh, taken on by the department and ultimately it's about having impact uh, on the ground um, uh, because that's obviously the the, the 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 European taxpayer is looking at value for money and uh, results based schemes I understand are, are an effective way of, of of achieving that so I understand Tia you're going to start us off uh, with the first that's part good. of the presentation and uh, we will then hear from Tracy and we'll, we'll have some questions afterwards. So uh, Tia, we'll hand over to you. Great. So the format of the event today is um, I'm going to cover the first part of the, the presentation, which is really to give you a background to this project and tell you what it's about. 
and tell you what we mean by innovative uh, contract-based programs. And then I'll hand over to Tracy, who's going to talk about the um, some of the results uh, on the survey we've conducted on this in Ireland and across Europe. And we'll finish up then with some questions with yourselves and some feedback on what you've heard, which would be really useful for us as well to further our own research. Okay, so the project that we've been working on over the last number of years has been funded through the U European Commission, the Horizon uh, 2020 programme. There are 24 partners across 13 countries um, and UCC are the partner in Ireland. And the project is called CONSOLE. And typically with these projects, the project name is an acronym of something that's much longer. So you can see the very long title here, which is really around uh, contract solutions for effective and lasting delivery of agri-environmental public goods. And I'm going to talk about what we mean by all of those kind of concepts in there now in the next couple of slides. But really, the overall objective of this project has been to look at how um, uh, agri-environmental schemes can be designed more effectively to, to deliver um, climate public goods by the European Commission. So it's really about providing information to the Commission on policy design. So what do we mean by agri-environmental public goods? I mean, as people with an interest in the agri-environment by the very fact that you're on this call, uh, all of these issues would be well understood to you. But when we talk about public goods, we talk about a good that is produced but cannot, um, cannot be sold on the market because the, the use of that goods good can't be restricted um, and therefore a price cannot be set on it. And therefore, there's no incentive uh, for people to produce such goods, and often the government steps in to support them. So most of the examples of public goods we, we have in economics textbooks anyway are drawn from the agricultural sector. So we talk about nice landscape, we talk about protecting stone walls, we talk about maintaining water quality. Everybody in society benefits from all of these things, but we don't pay directly for them. And so the government steps in to ensure that they are delivered. So within this project, when we talk about agri-environmental climate public goods, we're talking about a whole range of issues. Although climate is in the title, it's not just about greenhouse gas emissions and carbon footprint related issues. It's also about biodiversity, water quality, soil quality, and general rural viability. So that's what we mean by public goods in the context of this project. And I suppose what we're doing then is looking at how effectively government can step in to ensure that these goods are delivered, bearing in mind that consumers don't pay directly for them. And if we look back over history within the EU, we see that the approach of government or the European Commission over many decades has been to um, fund practice-based type approaches. So if we think of the likes of the REPS scheme going back to the 90s, which would be the very earliest form of these schemes, farmers were paid on the basis of what they did. So if they reduced their nitrogen application, if they maintained hedgerows. Uh, and so forth. And the payment was linked to the practice that was undertaken. It wasn't linked in any way to the output. And I suppose over the years, uh, reviews of these types of studies have, or of these, this type of approach, the traditional approach, has found that um, because they've operated on a national level um, and because they aren't linked to specific public goods, that they tend to be poorly targeted. So they haven't de delivered the desired results. And I suppose a European Court of Auditors assessment of these programs over many decades have set, set, concluded that despite the significant investment by taxpayers in them, there's still a decline in biodiversity and water quality. So that leads us to ask the question, how can we design these programs better? And over the last couple of years, we've seen an increasing emphasis on outcome-based or contract-based programs where essentially the payment to the farmer isn't based on the practice undertaken, but it's based on the quality and the quantity of the output. 
So it, these programs are seen to be much more targeted, effective and better value for money. And we've seen an increase in them right across Europe through things like the EU Life Programme and the European um, Innovation Programme, but and now increasingly through the new cap as well. And I suppose what we found is that these programmes can be difficult to implement. They can be costly um, and uh, they, they can be difficult to implement on a very widespread basis. So the purpose really of this project was to look at how these projects have been implemented to date across Europe and to make some recommendations about how they could be expanded uh, in, the, in the new cap and more generally in policy. So what we have done in the project is we've looked at 58 case studies right across Europe um, and four outside of Europe of these types of um, schemes that have run. Um, and as I said, they're usually on a much smaller scale and we're looking at them uh, in this instance to identify the success factors to be able to inform how you could um, uh, implement these types of uh, programs uh, more in a more widespread way, scale them up uh, effectively. So as part of the project, then we did these case studies. And then after that, we um, assessed farmers' willingness to participate in the different types of programs uh, with a view to um, developing a design guide uh, uh, for these types of contracts going forward. So we're just at that stage of developing the design guide at the moment. So what we're going to focus on today is, first of all, I'm going to talk about some of the case studies and the different types of contract-based programs. And then I'm going to hand over to Tracy to talk about the results of the farm survey. So there are a number of different types of contract-based payments. Um, there are four of them on the screen here, and they're the four that we focused on, um, results-based, collective, value chain, and land tenure. And what I'm going to do now is explain how each of those work and give you an example of how they've been implemented in Europe, because as we move on to Tracy's part of the presentation, it's very much about looking at farmers' views about the different types of programmes. So looking first of all at the results-based contract solution, this is probably the one that we're most familiar with. Um, the way it operates is that it, it targets a specific public good, so that could be biodiversity, it could be reducing the carbon footprint, it could be water quality. and um, Measures are push, measures and indicators are put in place to judge um, the, the status of those goods at the start of the program and again at the end of the program. So the idea is that farmers participate in this program, they undertake certain measures which should improve uh, the provision of that public good, and then they get a payment based on the quality of the improvement, not based on the practices undertaken. So we looked at case studies of these types of um, programs right across Europe, and there are quite a number. It's probably the most common um, uh, type of uh, outcome-based payments. And we looked at a number in Ireland. So I'm just going to talk about probably the most well-known project in Ireland from um, a results-based perspective, certainly the longest running one. And this is the one we presented as one of the case studies in Ireland. And there was really a lot of interest in this across Europe because of its longevity and because of the huge passion that Brendan Dunford brings to this project over many years. So you, you, you'll probably all be familiar with the Burn Life project. And I suppose why it falls into this category is because farmers participate in this project. Um, they undertake to uh, improve a certain um, farm practice or a public good, and then they're paid on the basis of the results. So some of the types of things that farmers undertook was the removal of um, uh, scrub um, to move away from the use of silage to, um, to use uh, more appropriate and traditional pasture-based systems that are more appropriate for the, the sensitive flora and fauna of the burn, uh, the restoration of traditional stone walls, 
And I suppose there were indicators linked to all of these activities. They were measured before and after, and the farmers' payments were very much dependent on what was delivered. And I suppose across Europe, this has seen to be one of the very successful examples of how contract-based, um, outcome-based payments can be run. Um, and also what we can learn from a project like this in terms of scaling it up. Okay, so that's probably the one people are most familiar with, but other types of programs then are, are more common across Europe. So the next one is, it's kind of a similar approach, but it's on collective implementation. So the idea here is that for some public goods to really improve their delivery, you need to do it on a regional basis. So maybe biodiversity, um, water quality, if, if one or two farms participate, but others that are feeding into the same water stream or enabling a particular farm don't participate, you won't get the same quality. So the idea of collective action is that in a particular region, a group of farmers need to come together. They can be coordinated by an intermediary. Again, uh, they're coming together to improve the delivery of a specific public good. Again, there is prescribed management, but there's also measurements of the outcome and the funding is based on, on the quality of the outcome. So we couldn't find any specific case study in Ireland that is similar to this. Yes, the burn is in a region, but I think with collective implementation, all of the neighboring farms within a specific area need to come together um, to work on it. So the example here is from France, and it is where 140 farmers located in a particular region came together um, and managed their, I suppose, um, crop rotations and the types of crops that were being um, uh, planted, and they did that um, specifically to protect the habitat for this uh, uh, very rare uh, type of um, hamster. And I suppose this was one of the examples we looked at um, across Europe that had worked quite uh, successfully, and the payment then was based on the number of hamster burrows that um, uh, were found in the particular region. So by planting particular crops and rotating them in a certain way, they were making the, the land, um, I suppose, a, a friendlier place for, for these hamsters to live. So the next type of contract we looked at was value chain contract solutions. And I suppose here it's a similar concept that farmers um, set out to improve the delivery of a particular public good but that they're rewarded for doing that through the value chain. And what do we mean by that? We mean that the consumer of the final product is actually paying a price premium for it. So this is an example where the market is working rather than the government to deliver this product. So I think this is a really interesting one and it would be a, a very nice uh, program to be able to scale up, maybe a little bit more difficult in Ireland where we export most of our products, but it was one that we see is much more common um, across Europe where there are shorter supply chains. Um, and by that, I mean that a lot of the product is, is sold locally and it's maybe easier for the consumers to connect with it and pay a higher price. The closest example we found in, in, in Ireland was we did a case study on the Carberry Greener Dairy Farms. And I know that many of you will be familiar with this, where the 62 farmers supplying Carberry Co-op came together to undertake a vast array of measures uh, to undergo education programs. I know many of them studied in UCC as part of this program uh, with the overall, I suppose, ambition to reduce the, the carbon footprint of the products they, they produce to um, deliver additional public goods through biodiversity and water quality. And I suppose all of this was funded through the co-op. Now, if there's anybody on the line and they can attest to the fact that this was actually resulted in delivering a higher price back through the value chain, um, I mean, that would be the ultimate success factor. Um, but I think this is probably the closest that we have to uh, an agri-environmental outcome-based program that's operated through the value chain that involves industry. 
So finally, the last type of um, contract we looked at then is one that wouldn't be common in Ireland at all. And it's, it's a land tenure based one. And it is where like a, a, a large area of land is um, rented for the specific purpose of delivering a public good. So just looking, it might be easier to explain it with the example. Just looking at this example here in Bulgaria, where the EU Life uh, Project funded um, the Protection of Birds Society to work with farmers to lease out over 600 hectares of land, so really, really large area of land. And by leasing it out, then the farmers still had access to the land to a certain extent. Um, they, um, they could use it for grazing, but they did have to undertake special environmental practices um, to protect that area for uh, natural habitats. And they received then the payment from the society rather than receiving a payment from the state in terms of um, in terms of the outcome based solution. So a, a different type of model again. So I suppose the purpose really of showing you all of these different uh, types of case studies is that they all have their own particular strengths and opportunities. Some of them might be very culturally sensitive and might work in certain countries and not in Ireland. And I suppose we looked at some of those strengths and opportunities and many of them link to how they're funded, how the payment is delivered, how the outcome is measured and all of that. So co common issues really across lots of them. <clears throat> so I suppose at this stage, I'm handing over to Tracy and she's really going to talk then about how we explored farmers' attitudes to these different types of approaches to delivering public goods. So thank you very much. And I'll hand over to Tracy now. Thanks, Thea. So really what I'm looking at here is the data we've collected over the last year or so. So across the EU, we've uh, interviewed, or sorry, surveyed about 2,000 farmers, and I've portrayed the data now, the Irish data beside our European counterparts. So we asked farmers questions such as, do you agree that, let's say, a results-based contract is easy to understand? And this is what's outlined in, our, in my first slide. So nearly 70% of farmers in Ireland agreed that a results-based contract was easy to understand. Now, this could be attributed to the fact that results-based contracts are relatively common in Ireland compared to the other contract types. And our results in Ireland were quite similar to those of our European counterparts. And uh, the type of contract that I suppose is the least easy to understand seems to be the collective agreement. Uh, these are complex. Of course, they involve a lot of farmers working together and negotiating how they'll work together and how payments will be divided. So they can be quite complex. In terms then of value chain and land tenure contracts, about 40 to 50% of farmers in Ireland agree that these are understandable. And we're uh, slightly falling behind European counterparts in terms of understanding the broad range of agri-environmental contracts that are available. We also asked farmers if they agree that the particular contracts are applicable to their farm. And again, results-based contracts scored highly. So 75% of farmers in Ireland feel that this type of contract would be applicable to their farm, which is higher than other European countries. Again, collective contracts score quite lowly and not many farmers believe that this type of contract would be applicable to them, either in Ireland or in other European countries. Approximately 50% of farmers in Ireland feel that value chain contracts would be um, applicable to their farm, so they are looking at them quite favourably, and that's slightly below the opinion in other European countries where this type of contract is much more prevalent. Um, in terms then of land tenure, I suppose this is interesting in that uh, in Ireland, we don't have a particularly high level of land rental. Only 19% of agricultural land is rented in here, as opposed to the European average of 54%. So it was hard in some cases to see how this might be applicable when we don't have a history of land rental, but it is increasing. And there is, there is optimism in that nearly 40% of farmers feel that this type of contract could be applicable to them. Understandability and applicability then seem to feed into economic benefits. 
So we asked farmers, do they agree that these type of contracts would be econo economically beneficial for them? So again, resource-based contracts are favoring very well. 71% of farmers feel that this would be economically beneficial for them, which is much higher than the European figure. Again, collective seems to be, um, you know, there's low levels of understandability, low levels of applicability, and also economic benefits are perceived to be low here again. In terms of value chain and land tenure, again, between and around the 50, 40 to 50% of farmers in Ireland feel that that would be economically beneficial for them. I suppose in terms of looking at these results as an overall, uh, farmers in Ireland do perceive the economic benefits of environmental contracts to be high across the four contract types, much higher than the European results. So we delved into this a little bit further. So we ran some statistical analysis to see, you know, what characteristics of a farm are encouraging farmers to feel that results-based contracts in particular would be economically beneficial for them. So we find that younger farmers um, are more likely to perceive results-based contracts to be economically beneficial. I suppose they're susceptible to, you know, the media um, promoting these type of contracts, education, and these are all factors that are encouraging them to see the economic benefits. Farmers with a high percentage of rented land also feel that these type of contracts would be beneficial for them. And those that have, prev no, have not previously used results-based contracts are very optimistic about the economic benefits that these type of co contracts could provide for them. So just to kind of outline the other factors we did look at and the factors that don't increase the probability of perceiving these contracts to be economically beneficial. So farming system had no influence, uh, farm size, which I thought was quite surprising, agricultural training, which in general is very high anyway across the board, and farm to total income. So these four factors didn't influence the perceived economic benefits of the results-based design of agri-environmental contracts. So overall, there is very high levels of understanding, applicability, and perceived economic benefits of results-based contracts. And similar to European counterparts, collective contracts are generally scoring low, seems to be a low understanding, a low feeling that they'd be applicable to farms here in Ireland, and generally the economic benefits are perceived to be low. And Irish farmers agree with the economic benefits of results-based contracts. And when we spoke to farmers, we found out that farmers like to work with their own autonomy and to be independent. And that would also signal why the collective contracts wouldn't be as attractive. Uh, so in a previous event we held um, not long, but just before Christmas of last year, we asked farmers and actually stakeholders, so we had um, industry representatives and researchers who were also asked what factors would increase the adoption of results-based contracts here in Ireland. So we gave the participants, I think, over 20 options, and they came uh, from a broad range of themes. So we had political, economic, social, technological, legal, and environmental factors um, that may influence the um, adoption of results-based contracts. So in terms of political stuff like paperwork, um, support from the government, um, in terms of economic stuff like remuneration for efforts made, financial risk, uh, a, a secure supply chain was also important. Then from social side, we had farmers acceptance, society's acceptance, cooperation, and technology then, of course, was things like having accurate measures um, and also technologies to carry out environmental practices. Legal then revolved around kind of the design of the contract and how simple it would be. And environmental then, of course, looked at the results and would it be a short-term result or a long-term result that might be um, affecting the importance here. So in terms of the results, then what, what is most important for, to encourage farmers to adopt results-based contracts? There was three top results. So the first one is that appropriate remuneration is important for increasing participation. 
So 74% of farmers rate this as very high, 21% said it was medium importance and 4% low. The second then was simplicity and understandability of the contract. 67% rated it high, 33% medium. And then the third most important factor to encouraging results-based contracts is defining suitable monitoring indicators. So 63% rated this high, 20, uh, 26% medium, and 11% rated this of low importance to encouraging results-based contracts. So really throughout the session, I hope we've provided a good background on the type of contracts that are available. Results-based contracts at the moment are the most, in, uh, the most prevalent. Um, and we, I suppose we'd like to get your thoughts on, should there be more programs that are based on outcomes? And if so, how should they be designed? So thank you very much uh, for your time. And I'd love to hear some feedback that you may have. Thanks, Tracy um, and, and Tia. Um, and I think there are two, two very good questions to ask our audience uh, today. Uh, so please, if you could maybe use your, your the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen and we could capture some of your thoughts there um, on those two questions. Maybe Tracy, if you could just remind us of those two questions. Okay, um, so generally I'm looking for feedback. So do you think, so um, any um, caller on the line, would they think that there should be a greater emphasis on outcome-based contracts, whether it be results-based, whether it be collective action, value chain, or tenure-based contracts? And if so, how should they be designed? So what have we learned from previous efforts and how can we improve going into the future in terms of our contract designs? Yeah, because I mean, there, there is a lot of experience, as you said, in, in the country with results-based schemes. And I see that uh, Brendan Dunford is uh, viewing this morning, one of the pioneers of, of results-based scheme there in the Burren, uh, a great example of, of what can be achieved uh, in a targeted way. And I guess we also see in the New Acres program, there are those cooperative measures in place to uh, to chase after kind of geographically specific uh, issues. Uh, so it is great to see that those those learnings are being incorporated into policy. Um, just in, in terms of the the effort that's required to uh, achieve these targeted results, there, there is quite a, a an, an overhead when it comes to to delivering a more targeted scheme. I think that that would that be fair to say, uh, Tracy? It would be. And um, from the people I've spoken to that are actively involved in these programs, there are concerns around funding. You know, they're for a short period. They like to see them into the future. And the reasons that if there is long term funding, it's more encouraging for people to get involved in these programs as well for, of course, the logistics side as well. And that farmers are supported for a longer period of time, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you spoke about the, the value chain based contracts um, and that I know there's been a lot of studies done around that willingness to pay for additional environmental or public benefits. Uh, what where is that at the moment in terms of you know I know it's it's you can't uh, make a generalism about people's willingness to pay, but even in Ireland here, I, I know there have been some studies on that area. Yeah. So, um, and I, I know I was looking at the Q&A there, Mark, and I know that um, somebody provided clarification on, on the Carberry example as well, mm -hmm. that they, they felt there wasn't a specific price premium for it. And I, I suppose that's what I suspected, but didn't want to make that statement. Um, it's tricky. I suppose it's tricky in Ireland, first of all, because we export so much of what we produce and uh, so much of it is a commodity type product. So if you're producing milk and it's going into milk powder and that's ultimately going into a product that's being produced for the North African market, you know, it, 
it, it is difficult to uh, get a price premium for that. So it's certainly not um, a panacea and a large scale solution for everything, but it could be a targeted approach. You know, so we do see things like, um, uh, you know, producer groups coming together and by uh, positioning and promoting their product that they can get a price premium. I suppose the one thing I would say is that the way the um, uh, political and economic environment is at the moment, it's probably not the, the scheme you would be pursuing because of the whole cost of living crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a conference in UCC earlier in the year and we had the CEOs of Musgrave and Tesco there and they just talked about, I suppose, um, the relentless pressure that retailers are under from both sides of the supply chain to play, pay producers a decent price, but to try to keep uh, food price inflation down. Um, and especially at the moment, that's that's a really serious issue. So like in theory, this this is a, a scheme that could work for a targeted um, niche kind of product. But because of the type of production we have in Ireland, I couldn't see it being a large scale solution, really. Yeah, that 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 issue came up. I was um, chairing a session uh, at the ploughing during the week uh, with a group of farmers from the Dingle Peninsula who are looking at ways of um, uh, responding to the climate challenge. And of course, adding value to their product was was one of the the options being looked at. But of course, for the rest or the vast majority of, of product produced in this country, it, it's it's exported to. To, to commodity markets, um, which is is that there lies in the challenge uh, to how, how how can we can we achieve that? Um, Pat, I, I I don't know if you're you're still with us. Uh, we we do have quite a number of questions coming through, so we will we we we'll come to those in a second. And Pat, you have a lot of experience with these particular schemes as well because you're head of the the uh, environment knowledge transfer uh, uh, program in Chagask and have been working very closely with schemes. I mean, could I just ask you what your your observations on this study are? Yeah, I I, I think there, it, it's it's really interesting to start seeing the the attitudes of farmers uh, coming back. It's one of the, I suppose one of the factors that we wouldn't have seen. We will have seen I suppose that that they're uh, where where they're effectively put together that they are are very effective and our our impression is that that farmers like them when they get used to them that they're a little bit nervous of them at at the beginning and and uh, I suppose we have the advantage here and, and this has been reflected in the questions that that may be the uh, example of the Burren and and its its success in an Irish context has helped the I suppose the perception of results based in the Irish context uh, uh, and uh, there was, there's a couple of questions in relation to that about the degree to which that has has been a, a, an impact but I think farmers are beginning to to realize more that uh, if we're going to sustain payments into the future, there has to be a demonstration of, uh, of uh, a benefit and a, a positive outcome. Uh, and that to achieve that, uh, that an element of uh, uh, looking at uh, uh, the quality of those outcomes, the improvements that are, are being driven it, it is, is going to be essential for that to happen in the future. Mm. Tracy, could I just ask in relation to the this, the um, this contracts that you you observed in other countries, were there were there any particularly innovative uh, uh, measures that you saw in place there that you know that, that that tried to achieve that market or creating that market for environmental products or public goods? I mean that that is the the holy grail, isn't it, when it comes to environmental economics? Is trying to to place a value on on these these. Um, these uh, activities or the, the the goods that are being produced by farmers. 
Yeah, definitely. So I suppose the biggest difference between Ireland and our European counterparts is in Ireland, the um, agri-environmental contracts are mainly results-based. Um, in particularly, say, the Netherlands, for an example, they have much broader selection. So value chain contracts are actively in place and uh, they're favoured quite positively. Um, same with collective agreements. Um, I suppose the results I show kind of was a bit negative maybe on collective agreements and that the understandability, acceptability and result or perceived economic benefits were quite low. But say in the Netherlands, it's much, much higher. They have these contracts in place. Uh, they're quite in favour of them and they've been successful. And of course, with land tenure as well, they're much more, ac um, more active. Um, so it is interesting to see, like my opinion from people I've spoken to is that in Ireland, we do have a strong preference to kind of work maybe independently. Um, and of course, look, I've spoken as well about land rental being lower in Ireland. There's just, I suppose, a different mindset maybe in other parts of Europe with larger farms. They're used to working collectively, used to working with corporations. Industry has uh, put a premium on some of the, the prices of the products. Um, so it's it's much broader, I suppose, in terms of the perspective in some of the European countries. But of course, the agricultural landscape is different in every country. So that's that's what's driving that. But it is great to see projects here that have been very successful. And they're, you know, they're a great example for you know, what we can do and uh, I suppose to implement them in across the country now is the next task, which would be fantastic. And Thea, without straying too far away from the the, the subject here, but we, we do see quite a shift occurring with the, the co-ops uh, who are buying products now. Previously, there wasn't a willingness to pay a, 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 a levy or a premium for, um, for products that were produced in a particularly environmentally friendly way. That, that that's now changing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that consumers and the customers of co-ops who are like the infant milk manufacturers and all of these other also very big companies are demanding better environmental standards and evidence of same. But I suppose it's questionable whether they're paying for it. Is it just being expected at the market price now? Mm. Or are they saying if you can show that your carbon footprint is below a certain level, um, that you can prove something about biodiversity, we'll pay you a higher price. I think just listening to industry leaders talking, it's more of the former, that it's just that you're expected to do it, to stay in business rather than being um, rewarded a higher price for it. And I mean, that that becomes the, the difficult part of it when we talk about public goods, who pays to deliver them. And I suppose in the current environment, there is still going to be a very big role for government to, to pay for them because... Uh, you know, it doesn't seem like the market will, will step up. And it, has there been any discussion, Tia, in, in, in any of the fora that you've been involved in around the the um, uh, carbon levy on food or, you know, where, where uh, you know, let's say beef produced in Ireland versus mm -hmm. being produced in another country is differentiated uh, through, through some form of a, a levy? Um, not particularly, I suppose. I mean, we have our own national targets in Ireland um, around uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which, you know, we, we need to meet in the national environment, regardless, I suppose, of what's happening uh, on the market more generally. Um, like, are you talking about, say, a kind of a carbon tax? I suppose that was yeah, something yeah. that came up. It came up at the Citizens' Assembly um, a number of years back, um, this proposal that certain products would be taxed in the way that we have a sugar tax. But I mean, I think it's out there as a concept. I haven't seen it being developed yeah. in any way in particular, you know, and I don't know how 
popular would be let's put it that way yeah. <laughs> or acceptable yeah it's, yeah it could you you wouldn't know the the, the unintended co- consequences from from a measure like that pat um lots lots of really good questions coming through there yeah and uh, uh, i suppose a couple coming in about the uh breakdown or the 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 the, the farmer survey and and the the farmers who were surveyed were they a random group of farmers were they people uh, was there a, a, a significant number of who had been exposed to um, agri-environmental schemes and in particular uh, um, results-based schemes? What was the nature of that, that that breakdown? I think it's important in interpreting the results as well. Okay, yeah, so it, it was um, a random sample and then there was a mix, and I can't think of some, I had the mix between people that had previously um, used contract. I think the, predominantly it was people that hadn't previously used such a contract. And it was looking then at their attitudes, but there was a broad selection, like it was across a range of farming systems, across uh, farm sizes and different regions in Ireland as well. Okay, uh, just I, I suppose one of the, the questions that's coming in uh, in terms of, of farmers' openness to, to the um, use of, of results-based is the risk of a, a zero payment or the risk of a very low payment. Uh, to what extent was, was was that expressed by farmers in conversation, or is it something that they're not not that concerned about? Yeah, that um, that's something actually we could explore a bit more. Um, I think that's kind of my concern about the collective contracts. Why um, the percentage of farms that agree they're applicable to their farm or they'd be economically beneficial is quite low. I think there might be concerns about that in terms of getting collective agreements. So for say farmers in an area, and then that their payments. Are susceptible to everyone working together so i think that's the concern with that type of contract in particular that it might be perceived as being more high risk compared to say a results-based contract where you're much more independent um i've had a comment from kira donovan who was involved in the greener dairy program with with carberry and and she's making the point that to her knowledge that suppliers didn't receive a higher payment for the milk in 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 that uh and that the, the the benefit came solely uh, from uh, the the marketplace, but I suppose there's two questions that that uh, uh, come out of that. I, I, I suppose in, historically, if I'm unless I'm mistaken, I think Carberry is one of the higher paying co-ops. So there's a, an element to which, if we're sustainable and and shown sustainability, that that that's reflected in price. But there's also something Tia that might I might refer to you, and that is. I suppose the advent and and the continued development of sustainability bonuses within the the dairy co-ops and how does that fit in with I suppose uh, the idea of the the um, value chain uh, mm. payment is is that in effect a value chain payment scheme or is it is it something quite different? Yeah. I mean, I suppose it is, and it's it's loosest, loosest uh, definition of the scheme. And if you think of the dairy quality assurance scheme run through Board Bia, which I think every farmer is a member of now, that is also a, far, a form of the, the value chain scheme. But I suppose when it isn't linked to a specific premium and linked to a specific set of activities, it's it's really, I suppose, um, a, a very kind of aggregate view of it. I think when we talked about it in this project, we talked about much more defined measures, much more defined outcomes um, being targeted, you know, at a specific scale uh, rather than a kind of a national program like that. And while while, you know, the national level programs, you might say, don't deliver a specific premium per se, the argument that some would make is that maybe the milk price would be lower if we weren't doing this because, you know, the Danones and the different big companies that are buying Irish product would buy it elsewhere if we weren't uh, as sustainable as we are. 
Yeah, and I, I, one of the other questions coming in relates to the kind of uh, amount of money that that needs to go to the oversight of such projects uh, relative to the more traditional type. Is it generally higher, mm. or, or uh, is it seen as being, from a farmer's perspective, as a, a problem with the schemes? Mm. Like, there's no doubt about it. Administratively, it, they're much more challenging, and and there's a reason why we started with the likes of reps. It was much more easy to implement. And um, when we look at some of the the case studies, I mean, you have ecologists employed. You have people go out measuring specific things on farms. You're talking there about a, a project in France where you're counting the number of hamster burrows. I mean, this is a major barrier to implementing these types of um, programs on a wide scale. And that's why I think anything that is implemented on a wide scale will have to be simplified. And I think they're the results that are coming out of um, of Tracy's analysis as well, that to, to do this on a bigger scale, there has to be some simplification in terms of the measurement of the outcomes because of the, the cost of administering them otherwise, you know. I think they're... Sorry, Mark, I was just going to say, this would have all come out of Brendan's uh, different publications coming out of the Warren project as well, you know. I think the, the the message also was that there are there are trade offs here as well. That I mean, if you are if we are to have impact with these schemes, they need to be the you know well targeted and uh, uh, that that level of support needs to be in place uh, to to guide farmers and for farmers to learn from each other as well um, and to, to get that that level of collaboration going as well. Um, so uh, we have another question there in, in relation to the water quality. Which model do you think would work best for water quality? Um, is is, is uh, maybe Tracy uh, from your experience? Uh, is is there a particular model that uh, is more better linked to different environmental goods? Yeah, I think um, so. For water quality, the collective action I think would be the best in terms of obviously water covers a wide area, so we need a buy-in from a you know a group of farmers really in the vicinity. In terms then of actually some additional data now I didn't present today and kind of the perceived benefits for each public goods and then the strong favours for results-based contracts for biodiversity. Um, that's the favoured one for that. I suppose it could be, I suppose compared to water, it's a bit more localised and that farmers have a bit more control individually. Um, in terms of other public goods, then carbon storage um, across the range of contracts really that can be um improved through the four types mm -hmm. but definitely for water i would say collective yeah that would make sense that would make yeah. sense and I, I mean that that is the basis of uh the uh the asap uh program that chagas is working with uh, farmers and industry it's very much a collective approach and targeting particular water bodies yeah, I, I suppose there's just a, a question there in relation to the uh, outcomes of the project. And one of them, uh, I'm not sure if it's, if, if it's part of your outcomes, is the design guide for agri-environmental schemes. Uh, is that part of the, the output? Uh, and yes. I know the person who's looking for it is in the process yeah. of designing um, a, 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 a results-based scheme at the moment for water yeah. quality. So. Yeah, so I suppose it's part of the overall final output of the project um, that's being being led by the Italian team. So the work we're doing here in Ireland is feeding into that. And I'm not, not sure what the timeline is on that. The project is due to finish 
um, this year. So I'm sure that that output will be coming um, in uh, the next couple of months. So if whoever's on the line wants to email us, we can share it. It'll be it'll be in, in the public domain once it's finished, you know. But I suppose it's, it's a, a set of recommendations to the Commission really on our findings in terms of trying to scale up these types of of programs. A question there in, in relation to uh, whether there's something particularly innovative at a European level that you saw that you think could be transferable to, to Ireland. Yeah, I suppose like the case studies, we, we picked a sample of them there and that's fairly representative of them. What I would say is that when we look at the case studies, I think they're very culturally specific. Um, like if we look at Austria, they have a lot of value-based um uh, value chain based examples there but like that they're one of the highest consumers of organic products in the world and um there you know there's probably it's a wealthy country and it's probably an easier market to deliver uh, that kind of program we looked at the collective action program we saw a lot of examples of that from eastern europe and i suppose that wouldn't surprise you then in terms of the history of collective farming that we've come through there so like what what we picked was a sample of different um the 58 different case studies they're all available online we did a short fact sheet on each one of them that has the same template so it's quite easy to flip through them um but what i would say is like some of them look very innovative but you'd wonder how they transfer to ireland because i do think they are kind of culturally specific and that was the value of doing a project like this all over europe and i think what it reinforces for the commission is you know, they talk about this principle of subsidiarity, allowing countries to, to set their own policies to a certain extent. And I think that reinforces this concept because certainly what might work in Austria or Bulgaria wouldn't necessarily work here. So the, these programs do need to be, uh, you know, co-developed um, within a country with the, with the farmers to uh, really ensure their success. There's a, a couple of questions in relation to the land tenure uh, approach and just how that that works. Uh, I think people are trying to get their heads around where the incentive is uh, within that and, and how uh, it, it uh, approaches a series of, of environmental or, or collective objectives. Mm. Um, so as the example there was like, it, it's really where a third party comes in and um, has a rental agreement with a large number of farmers in a particular area, the farmers still have access to the land. Um, but by taking the rent from the third party, they're agreeing to a certain set of measures. So it's almost like there's an, it's like a collective action, I suppose, except there's an intermediary there. Um, and they maybe don't have the same production rights or land rights than they would have under the collective action. So it's kind of quite a specific one. Again, you know, you would see this in uh, Australia and in North America and maybe areas where there are really large tracts of, of land where, you know, societies or charities or government bodies would come in and they'd rent very large areas of land to prevent land abandonment and that kind of thing. So, again, it's a one maybe that we're not as familiar with in Ireland. I don't know, Tracy, if you want to add anything to that in terms of farmers' views when you discussed it with them. Yeah, so in terms of um, understandability, it was quite low, about 40% of farmers in Ireland understand that system of the ones we surveyed. Um, applicability, again, to the farms was quite low, less than half would say, or even lower, I think about 30% of farmers would feel it would be applicable to their farm. And of course, the big obstacle there is, can, can a farmer get into that agreement? Can, can they find someone to rent them land or are they willing to rent out land? So that, I suppose, is the, the major obstacle. And one thing for it to be understandable and applicable, but can they actually feasibly engage in that type of contract? And then in terms of the economic benefits, um, 
those figures were quite good about 40% farmers felt it could be something that would be economically beneficial for them. But definitely the obstacle of the land market, I suppose, is where I think the biggest concern is can farmers access land um, to engage in this contract. And I suppose as you talk, Tracy, I'm reminded of your own PhD research about how successful all the tax incentives for long-term land leasing have been in Ireland. And I suppose, you know, you can talk yourself about the findings in terms of the strong sentiment in Ireland and kind of reluctance to enter long-term leasing. Do you want to say a few words? Yeah. Um, So in Ireland, um, a farmer that rents out their land can get up to €40,000 tax-free each year um, that has increased now that has to be on a long-term lease we're talking about 15 years or more for that particular level of tax relief it has encouraged land rental a, a bit i suppose you know over the last decade or so uh well this this tax incentive was increased in 2015 so particularly in the last few years it has increased but we're still we're lagging behind other european countries like parts of eastern europe particularly Slovakia. uh 89 percent land is rented in ireland it's 19 percent um, so, and the European average then is 54%. So we, our land market isn't that active. And we think about land sales as well, you know, less than 1% of land is sold each year. So being able to negotiate those kind of contracts now is going to be difficult if there isn't kind of an open market for, you know, ease in which we can rent in and rent out land, um, particularly on a long-term lease. If a farmer's going to engage in an agri-environmental scheme that's going to run for two or three years, they need to have that land for that period. So it's going to involve a step away from Conacre agreements, which I, is still I, still a predominant one. I know talking to some people, they would feel that the agri-environmental schemes are locking up land that, you know, I know there's, there's a lot of, um, let's say, dairy farmers out there who would like to get access to greater access to land and would feel yeah. that these agri-environmental schemes are blocking uh, that that access. Um, did, did that come up through any of your work yeah, access to land, you know, is, I suppose, the predominant uh, topic of my PhD and attachment is what features through people want to, of course, pass on land to the next generation and they'll, you know, keep it for that reason, of course. Um, so that does limit the market in terms of sales. Um, you know, I think land rental will become more active, but yeah, again, if if there's many people demanding it, of course, that is an obstacle and dairy farmers, you know, will, will want more, of course. Just, uh, just in the context of, we know that a lot of these schemes, uh, you know, we've had cap for many, many years now on these schemes in the last 30 or so years. Um, the, a lot of the environmental indicators are still not going in the right direction. Um, and there's a comment here, which I think is appropriate here. It says the administrative cost of these results-based projects cannot be taken in isolation as all agri-environmental schemes should have a monitoring element to ensure value for taxpayers money Uh, it's far cheaper to administer schemes that work like results-based and then pay for unsupported or unmonitored schemes that fail to deliver Uh, would you agree with that comment um, sorry, could you sum, summarize that maybe? So, so, so basically, of- you know, having targeted, um, sorry, results-based schemes, they're, they're ultimately better value for money for the, the taxpayer because okay. you're, you're, they're, they're the results you're, you're getting, you're, you're, you're getting higher impact effectively. Yeah, they're easier to measure, I suppose, like out the, I did some statistical analysis on, sorry, actually it was a poll. It was the last results I presented. Um, so I asked um, stakeholders, so whether they're farmers, industry or researchers, um, what they think is most important for encouraging results-based contracts um, and or actually all environmental agri- agri-environmental schemes. And they said simple indicators. So I think that's where the results-based contracts are winning 
and this easy to monitor relatively um, and they're very clear for farmers as well uh, as opposed to say the value chain contract where there's a lot of uncertainty will the money go from the final consumer back to the producer um, in terms of collective contract will everyone pull together to the same level and will the payments reflect the level of effort and the results that are coming from each farmer and then the the 10-year contract as well is still you know where's that money going to come from so the results-based contracts are very clear and that's why they're gaining popularity and of course success as well i might come in on that as well mark and i think it just relates to another comment that i saw there in the q a box and it's that um like the results-based um uh, approach is more effective in delivering public goods and yes you have to pay for the administration and as the person has made the point maybe that's money well spent but i think and then you talked about the overall national profile of water quality and greenhouse gas emissions. I think the issue with lots of these programs, whether they're results or practice based, is the type of farmer who gets into them. And um, if if you have a scheme that's only attracting farmers who are already performing at quite a good environmental standard and maybe are not very intensive in production, getting into a program and being even better. But if you have a large group of farmers over here who are very intensive and they're not in any program, you're never really going to see major changes in your national indicators around water quality and i think it's it's trying to fix that issue is one of the main challenges of these agri-environmental programs designing a program that will bring in a, a, a large chunk of the population and even a large chunk making a very small uh, change is probably better than preaching to the converted who are already in these programs and they're doing even more i don't know if that if I, you get my point there yeah, absolutely but, yeah no yeah. It, it makes it makes sense and i, I guess it's yes yeah, how how accessible those schemes are and and also i think the the sort of the narrative around these schemes you know that you're not seen to be you know uh hanging up your 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 um the your you know the, the your farming by by engaging in one of these mm -hmm. schemes that these are you know these are you know some really progressive farmers that are engaged in agri-environmental yeah. schemes and um are, are also involved and in, i know there's, there's uh, some fantastic work going on with the uh farming for nature uh network mm -hmm. as well so so there's 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 a lot happening in that space i think it's like sorry pat um, yeah, no, i think the the signpost um program pat that you're so involved in yourself like i think that's just a really effective way of demonstrating that you know these initiatives don't have to be for the minority they can be rolled out on large commercial productive farms and can make an environmental impact and, and farms can still generate a very decent income from their farm do you know that we're mainstreaming all of these concepts of sustainability rather than them being for a particular cohort of farms sorry pat no and no, no, there's just a, i suppose a, a comment here um about whether farmers are completely uh, motivated by economic benefits or uh, is it are there a significant number of, of farmers who just want to see local their local environment improve and i suppose it raises a a, a question as to whether the involvement in uh, is there any evidence that the involvement in results based type approaches increases either motivation or capacity or or education of the farmers to deliver more um, I think those results are in a kind of an anecdotal way from looking at the case studies that you see that farmers who become involved in those kind of schemes become extremely enthused. And even when the funding runs out, they continue to deliver the public good because, in fact, you know, they might not have just been doing it for the payment. They might have been doing it for 
the the good for the farm or for the for the habitats or biodiversity or whatever it is that's motivated on them and um, motivating for them and I suppose it comes back to why do people get involved in the first place and that's why I think we need to broaden the type of farmers that are getting involved um, and by being part of these programs and seeing the results and hopefully seeing the environmental results without seeing a major um, negative impact on the productive capacity of their farm that that's where you'll see real long-term benefits then when the funding does expire. And I suppose great examples uh, I of um, European innovation projects are taking place across the country that are piloting these, mm. these measures. So it's a, it's a great test bed for future schemes or mainstreaming schemes. And, um, so, you know, obviously there's a, it's important that the economic dimension of that is is uh, considered when when uh, when when designing or, or looking at these uh, uh, testing these schemes. Um, we're we're getting close to we're pretty much on up on time. Pat, did you have a final comment? No, no. I think I, I think it'll be interesting to see with with uh, twenty thousand farmers going into cooperation project acres schemes now, which are totally results based. I think there'll be a much bigger database of of uh, for us to learn uh, the the attitudes and 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 to, to extend our learning. So I, it'll be nice to see the the continuation of the analysis of of attitudes and and success and failures in in, in this space because I think we we do need to learn quickly uh, about what works and what doesn't work. Okay, we, we have to wrap it up there. Um, Tracy and Thea, thank you so much for coming along today to share the results of the, the Consol project. I presume if people want to find out more about that project, uh, Google it, I guess is probably it's the- It's on website, yeah. I, I don't know what it is offhand now. It's something like console.eu, but it will come up and all the case studies are there actually for people who asked questions about different examples across Europe. Excellent, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, a special thanks to our audience for the really excellent questions this morning as well, because uh, it is a, a complex enough area. And uh, but uh, people obviously have a really good grip at this area because it's a, it's a very the, judging by the questions that are coming through. Uh, Pat, thanks very much for helping out with questions. And uh, I want to say thanks to Yvonne Maher, who's helping us with our uh, the technical background here. And of course, Andy Boland, who is the series producer. And uh, next week, uh, we're going to be joined by Ruth Buggy from uh, Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland and Dinny Galvin from the West Kerry uh, Sustainable Energy Community. And we're talking about starting an agricultural uh, sustainable energy community. So do join us for that discussion. We will see you next Friday. Thanks. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.